You're listening to the Truth and Boots podcast. Join me as we search the Bible for truth about our God, for hope to encourage us through hard trials and struggles, and for answers for anyone who questions our faith. The truth of God's Word is not fragile, impractical, and only used on special occasions like a pair of stiletto heels. God's Word, like a pair of sturdy boots, is meant to be put to work daily and is designed to protect us and help us through the mud, streams, and rocks of life. Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. I've referenced before that I have a baby. He is a toddler now, and he's going through this stage where he really, really loves books. I mean, that's his favorite thing to do. So I've been reading a lot of books recently, and there was one that I've been reading him that's based on the ancient Aesop's fable of the tortoise and the hare. It's modernized quite a bit, but the stories are still the same. And that story illustrates that a little bit of steady work is what will get you to the finish line instead of some flashy or boastful star athlete. If you're not familiar with it, the tortoise is obviously a very slow animal. And the hare says, I can beat you any time in a race. The tortoise was not to be dismayed. He said no. Let's try it. I'm pretty sure I can beat you in a race. So in this modern rendition, he does a lot of training and working out and, you know, physical conditioning, eating right. The hare doesn't do anything. And then when it's race time, the hare is constantly stopping in the race to chat with a friend, to oh, go eat a heavy lunch, to take a nap in the sun. And each one of those things allows the tortoise to catch up with him. And then finally, that big nap that he takes um, is what allows tortoise to get to the finish line just before he can. So I read this story a few times, and then the thought hit me that our Christian lives are actually just like that. And the Bible likens our Christian journey to a race many times. So I started meditating on sanctification aspect of our salvation. Now, for those who don't know the technical terms, there are three aspects of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is what we like to call the moment we we receive salvation or we get saved. That's the prayer. That's the moment of confession and belief. Um, sanctification is where God is slowly changing us into his image. And then glorification is what happens after we're dead. We get our new bodies and a new life, um, through Christ. So we forget that our salvation is a process, that it is a race that we run, that, As we go about this Christian race, we will fall and skin our knees. We'll have challenging patches. We think that, okay, once we're saved, I need to be perfect now. But no, God is changing us slowly to be in the image of Christ. And then one day when we're glorified, we're going to lose our sin nature completely. This episode will be addressing that sanctification aspect of our salvation And what happens and what a response should be about when we fall. Because we will fall as long as we're in this body. So you've made a commitment to Christ that you would never do that sin again. But here you are. 
You've done exactly what you said you wouldn't. You feel hopeless. You think that Christ can't have any use for you. Is there a biblical example of what to do in this situation? Well, yes, there is. I can't believe I've never thought of this until now, but it just hit me recently that Peter is a great illustration of what happens when we fall. So we all know the story of Peter denying Christ three times. And let's take a look at it now. Christ is about to be crucified. And during the Last Supper, he tells Peter, before the cock crows tomorrow morning, you will deny that you know me three times. And Peter's like, no, I will never deny you, Christ. I swear it. Well, we all know that during the Christ trials, three different people approach him. And Peter says to each one of them, no, I don't know that man. I am not of his followers. And when the cock crows, the Bible says Peter's response to this utter realization of, oh, no, I did exactly what Christ said I would. Luke twenty two sixty three says he went out and wept bitterly. Now, that is exactly how I felt when I have yet again fallen into my stubborn habit. I am appalled at myself that here I am yet again. And on occasion, I do what Peter does next. So he's hiding with the rest of the the believers. Christ rises from the dead. And then he's excited about that, you know, thrilled that Christ is not dead. He's not in the grave. He has risen. But what does he do next? John 21.3 says he got up. And instead of preaching the gospel and sharing the good news like Christ was encouraging them to do, he goes back to Galilee and starts fishing. He goes back to what is familiar. We, just like Peter, can sometimes give up on ourselves. Like, why bother? But I think it is beautiful what the scriptures say here about God's response to Peter's failure and also God's response to us. Before Peter ever committed this sin of denying Christ, not once, but thrice, Luke 22, 32, Christ says, okay, you will deny me, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That is just so heartening to me that Christ tells Peter, yes, you're going to fail, but I have already prayed for you that when you do fail, your faith will be strengthened as a result of that trial, that situation. And then not only that, I've prayed for you, I've interceded for you, but I have confidence in you. Christ doesn't say, okay, when you've turned again and have your faith strengthened, then just continue on your journey and and don't take a leadership role. No, he says, strengthen your brothers. Use this lesson that you've learned in your failure to, to in turn, encourage your brothers in Christ. But Christ doesn't stop there. Peter goes back to the Sea of Galilee and is fishing. And in John 21, Jesus shows up 
And he challenges his disciples to go and fish in the lake, and then they bring back fish, and that's when they realize, oh, this is their Christ. This is our Savior. And then Jesus and Peter have a heart-to-heart. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these, the fishes? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love me. And then Christ's response is, feed my lambs. Now, three times Christ asked Peter here, do you love me? And Peter is grieved that he was asking him three times, do you love me? But yes, he says, I love you, Lord. And Jesus says to him again, feed my sheep. Jesus is chasing after Peter. He is seeking restoration of their relationship. He doesn't want Peter to live in a world of resignation that he can't be of any use. Christ isn't done with him. Christ seeks after him, seeks restoration, seeks to encourage Peter, and then commissions him once again, okay, be a leader for me. Go strengthen your brothers. So I hope that is a very real encouragement to you that when you do fall, you're in Peter's company. And Christ is there interceding at the right hand of God for us in our failures. But let's get a bit more practical with what happens when we fail. Well, as you see Christ here doing, we need to reconcile with God. That would be to confess our sins to him, say, yes, I have sinned against you, Lord. This is why what I did was wrong. And that will ensure that you have nothing between you and God in your prayer life, in your devotional. There's nothing blocking that conversation, that communion, that fellowship. And if necessary, reconcile with someone else. So if you bit the head off of your of your children or your spouse or your coworker, go to them and say, I'm sorry, that was wrong. Will you forgive me? Whatever is necessary, restore the relationships. And then secondly, remind yourself as truth as, as necessary. So go back to any verses that have encouraged you in this particular area in the past. If you're doubting God's goodness, go do... Go rehearse your study that you've done on God's goodness. Remind yourself of the truth that your ultimate goal is not victory over sin, but a relationship with God himself. And thirdly, recognize the truth that feelings should not drive your life, and that includes feelings of guilt. So don't wallow in guilt. Accept the forgiveness that Christ freely offers and move on to the joy in your Christian life. But there's also one final thing that you need to do before you move on. Evaluate, because you won't see any change unless you actually do things differently. So are there any more untruths that you might believe in? This might be an opportunity for you to go see counsel from a Christian counselor or a trusted um, fellow sister in Christ. Maybe you need to put up some more guardrails for yourself. Matthew 5.30, Christ says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I mean, take extreme measures, he's saying. So 
Is there something you need to do, like canceling your credit cards? You can't make any more impulse purchases or not even buying junk food. So when you have that weakness to um, to emotionally eat, the junk food that you go for is not even in the house. Maybe you need to put an app on your phone to limit your usage of it or switch up an activity Instead of watching TV all evening, which might lead you to a particular sin, decide ahead, I am not going to do that anymore or by myself anymore or something like that. So evaluate your lives. Maybe do this with your friend as well and see if there's anything you need to change so that you are less likely to go off the road again. But now I want to move on to spending significant amount of time in seeing what the Bible says about our sanctification. The entire New Testament is full of truth on this, but Romans 7 and 8 kind of are, I'd say, the core passage that teaches this. I was telling a friend of mine how I definitely echoes Paul's statement in Romans 7. You know, the statement that I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. And Paul ends that passage there saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? My friend pointed out that this passage is one that shows us what life is like when we try to live it in our own strength instead of walking in the Spirit. And that is so true. Because the very first verse of chapter 8, so Paul says, wretched man that I am, and then he moves right on into, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then the entire chapter 8 talks about what sanctification looks like in our life and how the spirit is working through us. So I went back to study this chapter and found several huge encouragements about how I'm being sanctified, how the Spirit is at work in my life, changing me into Christ's image. So first, as I quoted that verse there, Christ, God, does not condemn you. We we get stuck in dwelling on the thought, I can't believe I keep on doing this. But God doesn't want us to live our lives there. Go back to the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, and add on verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God loves us as sinners. For God so loved the world, not the perfect, but all the imperfect people in the world. He loved the world and he died for us while we were still sinners. Christ does not condemn us as sinners. No, he loves us. He desires us to be saved, to be slowly changed into his holy image. If you need one more proof that God does not condemn you, go to the example of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. These religious leaders bring this adulteress caught right in the act to Jesus, throw her at the feet of Jesus in the dirt, and they tell Jesus, Moses commanded that such a woman should be stoned. 
And Jesus responded to them, If there is anyone without sin among you, let him be the first one to cast the stone. And then he crouches down into the dirt and starts drawing around in it, writing in it. And when he looks up again, all of the religious leaders are gone. And he asks the woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Christ did not cast a stone at her. He has not cast a stone at us. He has not condemned the world. He wants to save us. So don't keep stoning yourself. But notice what Christ does here. He doesn't end there. I know sometimes you hear people say, you have freedom in Christ. That's great. Move on. Don't, don't worry about your sin. But that is not the truth Jesus is teaching here. He said, go and from now on sin no more. God loves us as sinners, yes, but he doesn't want us to stay there in the, in the guilt and, and in the mire of our sin. He wants to change us. He doesn't want us to stay there. So, secondly, move on. Just as Paul did in the rest of Romans 8, just as Jesus says to this woman, go sin no more, move on with your life, don't look into the past and be guilty over the sin that I've already committed you, forgiven you for. Move on to what life is like when we walk in the Spirit. Romans 8 has so many beautiful truths, and I don't have time to develop them all, but I do want to stop on verses 26 through 29. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When we are saved, the Spirit comes and dwells within us. And because he lives with us, he knows our, he knows our hearts. He knows everything about us. And he is able to intercede with sorrow, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then the next verse is another frequently quoted verse in our Christian circles, but we take it so out of context that we can't see the beautiful truths of what it's teaching. So the spirit is interceding for us, and he knows the will of God, and he intercedes for us according to the will of God. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So let's take this verse, this all things work together for good verse, and put it in the context of Romans 7 and 8. Romans 7, we aren't able to be sinless in our own strength. We keep failing, but God doesn't condemn us. No, the Spirit of God is interceding for us to make all things work together for good in our lives because God chose you before time began to be changed into Christ's holy image. That is the message of Romans 8. That is why God, all things work together for her good because that is part of God's sanctification plan. 
each step in the Christian life. Each failure is supposed to encourage your faith. Spirit is praying for you. Christ is interceding for you that when we fail, we will be strengthened and that we can in turn strengthen our brothers. And that is all the part of the process of being changed into God's image. And I thought this part, this encouragement for sanctification ended there in that verse. But then I started studying this passage a bit more and meditating on it. And I realized that that is not all the encouragement Roman 8 has to give us. Because not only is the Spirit interceding for us and working in our lives to conform us into God's image, but the chapter ends with this amazing encouragement that God is for us. He is cheering us on every step of the way. He is not standing in our way. He's there by our sides. So we know all things work together for good in verse 28 because 29, God is changing us to be like his son, to be in his son's image. And then two verses later in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The king and the creator of the universe is on your side, so no one can overpower him and his ways in your life. 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's grace and generosity towards you has no limits. He has already given you the life of his most beloved son, so of course he's going to give you anything else very willingly. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The judge of the universe was the one who served your sentence for you. So now you are free. And verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Your Savior is pleading on your behalf to a Father God who has already given you everything, including His Spirit, to help you every step of the way. So who in this universe is left that has the right to condemn you? God is for you. So who can be against us? Okay, so I've referenced walking in the Spirit and having the Spirit work through you, and those can be kind of hard concepts to grasp. So what exactly is walking in the Spirit? After all, Galatians 5.16 says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And that is what we all want, right? We want to be able to walk in the Spirit so that the Spirit can work His fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, etc. through us. So what do you have to do? What do I have to do in order to walk in the Spirit? The answer is found in Ephesians. I referenced in previous episodes that I spent significant time studying this book um, during this last year. And one of the things that struck me about this book was how beautiful the activity of each member of the Trinity was illustrated there in our salvation. So if you want to study on the Trinity, go to Ephesians and you have a great picture of each member of the Trinity there and several references to all three working at the same time. But I get sidetracked. 
The Spirit's role in Ephesians is twofold. His first role is to reveal God's truth to believers. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. And then chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 say, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. And then 6.17, you have the reference, the whole armor of God. And you're supposed to put on the armor of God, including the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the Spirit's role is to reveal God's truth to the believers. And that last verse right there shows you how he does that through the word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. He's revealed truth to the holy apostles who wrote down the New Testament. And Paul's desire in writing the book, his thesis in chapter 117, is that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So the spirit uses the word of God, which he revealed to the apostles for them to write down for us. And he uses that to instruct us in the knowledge of our God. So that is where he starts. And that is why in the last episode, I was so adamant that you will not have a victorious life if you don't have a daily quiet time studying God's word, because that is what the spirit uses to change you into Christ's image. And the spirit's second role is to fill believers. And this is twofold. We know that we start to accept and act like things that we fill our mind with on a daily basis. So if you've been listening to someone say that you are worthless for years, eventually you start believing it. If you, as I've heard a testimony of some a fellow Christian say, if you listen to angry music, even if you're not angry in the first place, eventually you will live in a world of anger because that is what you're hearing all the time. So you accept and act like things that you fill your mind with, and you also become like the people you're around, whether it's by choice or um, unconsciously. You see this in people who come into new groups of friends. They start dressing like that new group group of friends, acting like them. You see this when people get married. Um, I as a Westerner, don't say certain terms and certain words, but getting married, now I call soda pop, all because of the influence of my husband. I've adopted things that he's said. I have become interested in things that he's interested in because we are now in a close relationship. And because I'm around those things all the time, I have learned to like them. And that is what the Spirit does. When He fills us, when He indwells you and comes and lives in you, He is affecting your mind, He is affecting your actions, your opinion. You can set up walls against Him. But if you spend time in the Scriptures and let those influence your mind and let Him and His presence affect your heart and you listen to what He's saying to you through your conscience and through His Word, that is when you start to be changed because he is indwelling you. I like the way that that passage in chapter 3 says this in Ephesians. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, Paul is praying that the spirit will be strengthening us for two reasons. One, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So Paul is praying for our faith here. And two, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So he's praying for our faith, and faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He's praying that we have the understanding, the ability to understand God's word. And the goal of all this is that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the Spirit is with you every moment of the day, influencing you on how to think and how to act. It's not all that complicated. If you choose to spend time with your God in his word, listening to music with other Christians who are godly and will bring you in the right direction, that is all part of walking with the Spirit. Because that is all being filled with the things that are good that will slowly change you into becoming Christ-like. Okay, so I open this episode with the illustration of the tortoise and the hare. So think of that tortoise again. You are the tortoise. You are doing a slow and steady race. You're not flashy. You can't get anywhere quickly. You can't change drastically. Each step is progress. Occasionally, we might hit a boost by going downhill or getting a quick drink, but our progress is going to be slow and steady like it should be in a marathon. You don't want to sprint the entire length of a 26-mile race. You will be absolutely worn out. Also, in this race, we hit those speed bumps, which will slow us down. We will trip over a rock or even our own feet. Um, And we will come to our knees or maybe fall flat on our face. But it's then that we need to remind ourselves that we are not alone in this race. The Holy Spirit is running right beside you to guide you every step of the way. He's there with the medicate to clean, to cleanse your skin knee and then pull you right back up to your feet. He's there to coach you up a hill or through a river. He knows what you need when you're so exhausted that you don't have the ability to form words. He's speaking encouragement and hope in your ears urging you on to that finish line, that prize of peace and eternal rest. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold.